From Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, uh, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what are the immeasurable greatnesses of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. <clears throat> Our study this, t- this morning in Ephesians takes us to the next phase of Paul's letter. It's the first mention of thanksgiving and prayer that he makes. Now, this it's typical of Paul to thank God for the people he's writing to and mention his prayers for them. As we've seen the last three weeks, this is not in the normal place where Paul puts it, though. Paul opens his letter with an introduction. He tells who the letter's from and who it's to, and he extends the the comment of grace and peace unto you, and then he typically moves into his thanksgiving and, and comments on prayer. Well, we've seen over the last three weeks that Paul erupted into worship. He starts into his letter as he normally does, and then he moves into this place where he is praising God for all the work that he's done. And if we had time this morning, I'd actually spend that time, I'd spend some time and go back and just reread that and so that you'd have it in your minds. Because all that Paul praised God for in those verses, in those verses 3 through 14, those 12 verses, that one long sentence, 202 Greek words, stacking praise upon praise upon praise, he now prays that these people will come to know. That they won't just have heard the information from him or that they won't just have information about it, but that they will know it. And he moves into this, this passage. He doesn't, he doesn't lose his passion and purpose. Uh, it, it's, it's not as if all of a sudden Paul is done with this moment of worship. He, he, spits, out, he's, he spits out these 202 words, writes them down, gets up and just praises God, and then boom, I, I, all right, now I'm on to something else. See, this next, in fact, this whole passage that we're reading today, these, these nine verses, like the last 12 we studied, are still just one long sentence. Paul is still carrying along in this sense of passion and purpose by which, he is, by which he's been begun um, writing. So as we look today, we're going we're gonna to pull this prayer apart, and, and hopefully we will uh, learn from it. We'll, but, but I don't want you to just learn about prayer. I don't want you to just learn about Paul's prayer. And we're going to look at Paul's motive, Paul's uh, petitions, and Paul's assurance in this prayer. But, but I don't want you to just learn about his prayer. I want you to learn to pray for one another in this way. I, I, as I thought about this lesson this week, and, and really last night something happened that struck me that, that, that made me ask this question even more intently. When Amy and I took a date night last night, we'd kind of been pushing our date night off, which I don't recommend for anybody, but we hadn't really taken a date night and, and gone and just spent time alone for a while, and so we, we reserved last night for that, and one of the things that we decided to do was go watch the new Sandra Bullock movie, Gravity. I'm not going to give anything away if you're planning on going to watch that 
but the, uh, the, the, this, in the midst of this movie, I'm sitting there watching. These things are on my mind, and there comes a place where she is, her character is recognizing the gravity of the situation she faces. No pun intended. I mean, this is a big problem she faces. It's a big deal. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. She, she recognizes this, and she makes a comment out over the radio, would, would anyone say a prayer for me? And then she says, well, I would pray for myself, but I don't know how. No one ever taught me. And it dawned on me in that moment as I'm sitting watching this movie that really has nothing to do about anything spiritual, but it struck me. Who ever taught me to pray? I think prayer is one of those things that we just grow up, we see people kind of doing it, especially if you grew up in church. You just see people doing it and you kind of imitate them. You, you may have your own voice in prayer. You may say things slightly differently. But most of us, I, I think most of us, this is just something we've learned to replicate from generations ahead of us. But, but I think today, I, I think that, that maybe one of the most powerful things that can happen today is not just learn about what Paul prayed for, but that we can learn to pray for one another in this way. As we have approached this letter to the Ephesians, we are approaching it in these sermon series, in the sermon series, as, as a focus on what God has decided to do in his sovereign mission. We're calling it a gracious rebellion. By all accounts, by, by every perspective that man could have, sin had won. Death ruled. We have no hope. We are condemned to die. Objects of wrath. But God, in his sovereign power, by his sovereign will, with his sovereign purpose, decides to unite all things in him in Christ. To bring everything back to right order. And he does that through Jesus. That's, that's his gracious rebellion. And as a people of this rebellion, I think it's important that we move past praying for those surface issues and pray for those things that will affect us in all the surface issues. So I want us to learn to pray today. I want us to, to learn about prayer, but I want us to learn to pray for one another as Paul prayed. Now, I heard Ray Ortland on, speaking on this a couple of years ago at a conference I was at. And he talked about this in, in the sense of this is a pre-approved prayer. Okay? God recorded this for us. He, he ensured that you and I could, could, could hear this. So it's something that we can copy and we can emulate. I, I don't feel bad about using Paul's exact words. Same with sincerity and authenticity. But man, pray this for one another. I want us to learn to do that. And so let's, let's just dig in and let's see what the passage holds. And, I, and just look for how we can pray for one another. And we're going to deal first with Paul's motive in prayer. Now, in verse 15 and 16, we really get that. We get a picture of that. He, he gives us insight into why he's praying. And the very first thing he says is be, uh, or, or for this reason. For this reason. That's a phrase, and we could, we could look at it and, and say, oh, it looks forward to the, coming, to the coming sentence, or it looks back. Everybody, This is one of the few places that everybody I read from, all the different perspectives I, I listen to, they all agree. 
This word in the Greek, the, the way it's been translated, it may, may give us some, some thought that it can look forward, but everybody I read from agrees this looks back. See, Paul's first motive is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, and so I pray for his sovereign will. Paul, Paul prayed then, and if you think about what's in those first 12 verses, Paul prayed because he knew and understood God's sovereign plan to unite all things in Christ. God, or, or Paul prayed because he knows God sovereignly elects and predestines. Paul prayed because he knows that God works all things to the counsel according to his own will. Paul prayed because he knows God's blessings are bestowed on God's people based on God's sovereign will. See, these sovereign purposes motivated Paul to, to, to pray. And he didn't just say, I pray every now and then. He didn't say, I pray in this way sometimes. He said, I pray this way for you without ceasing. And I don't think that meant that he's always praying for these people constantly. There's never another thought in his mind. But every time he went to prayer for them, this was his request. This was his desire for them. This was, this was his God-given, God-focused, God-anointed um, um, desire for these people. Always in prayer, this is the way I think of you. This is what I want for you. Because God is sovereign, I'm going to ask these things. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe, maybe you've heard this. Well, if God knows what's going to happen, why should I pray? God's sovereign. I don't, I don't need to ask him for anything. He knows what's going to happen. I don't, I don't need to waste my time with prayer. I, I just need to be about doing things. I need to go out and work and get stuff done for him. God's sovereign. He doesn't need you, <laughs> need you doing anything for him. He decides to use you. He decides to allow you to have a part. And part of the part you play is your prayer. See, God's sovereignty is not a reason to be lazy about prayer. God's sovereignty is a reason to pray consistently, constantly, to, to continue in it, to pray boldly and confidently. See, we don't have to be afraid to, to approach the throne of God. We don't have to be afraid to, to speak to the creator of the universe. We don't have to be afraid of a God whose power could smite us. Just like that. We can approach his throne because he has sovereignly acted on our behalf. I mean, you, you remember back in the Old Testament, the, the, um, the Israelites, as they, as they stood around the mountain, they're about to enter into covenant with God, and they, won't, they don't want to go anywhere near the mountain. They don't want anything to, they don't even want to hear his voice. And they elect Moses to go and be their, be their, uh, their adversary, their advocate. Their liaison. Because they're so afraid. Because God has sovereignly acted, we can boldly approach Him. And we can approach Him confidently. We can ask with confidence, knowing it's going to happen. If, if you want your prayer always to be answered affirmatively, you know, like you want to hear yes every time, pray this prayer. For God's people, he will do what he's decided to do. He'll never tell you no about this. Never. He wants this. There's, there's no other prayer we can pray with such confidence. But a prayer like this for God's people. 
We can pray for one another's circumstances. We can pray for one another's health. We can pray for one another's emotional struggles. We can, but, but there is no confidence that those come to an end. Until when? The end. But this, despite the circumstance, despite the struggle, despite the issue, despite the problem, despite the reason that we would typically be drawn to prayer, God's sovereign will for his people should drive us to our knees to long for him to act according to his purposes for one another. And we can expect it to come to pass. Asking God to do what God has decided to do, it aligns you with God's purposes and His plan. See, it's not just about aligning your thoughts and your words. It aligns you, all of you, with His plans and purposes. Prayer is probably really less about what God needs to hear from us. It's about what God's doing in us. You see what I'm saying? God doesn't need our prayers. We do. So God's sovereignty motivated Paul to pray. The second reason Paul gives for praying is based on the response of the Ephesians to God's sovereign work. He says this. He says in verse 15, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. His his knowledge of who they were in Christ, his, his understanding of who they were and who they'd been made to be, that's what drove him to pray this way. You see, his understanding and his, his, per, his perspective of who they were is what motivated this particular prayer. Now, this is a, it's a principle that it runs all the way through uh, this letter, and actually you can see it in all of the Bible our response and the way that we respond to God should not be downplayed in any way. God's sovereign work is absolutely necessary. But, but if we remove the response, then we've removed one of the prime indicators of his work in us. See, when God works in people, there is an obvious result. There's fruit. He doesn't say there might be fruit he doesn't say there could be fruit. He says there is fruit. And Paul saw the fruit of these people. He saw their real faith. He saw the results of that real faith in the way they treated one another. They loved one another. That word love isn't about feeling good and love you like, hey, man, you, you mean something to me. It's not, it's not the love we say when we're getting off the phone. Love you, man. Love you. That we throw in at the end of a letter. This is sacrificial, proactive, servicing love. This is, this is action for someone's best interest. This is godly love. He saw that evident in the Ephesians. And because of that, he prayed. Now, it's important we understand this. It's, it's, it's important we get it. Because as we pray, as we learn to pray, as we strive to pray, our prayers should be shaped by the person's person or persons and, and their relationship to Jesus Christ. Just, just think about this for a second. I mean, it makes really a lot of sense if you stop and we just th- stop and think about it. If you know someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and they're struggling with a job and they say, would you pray for me? And you say, sure, I'd pray for you. 
and you, and you pray to God, God, would you just fix their job? Would you, would you help them be secure in their job? Is that really ultimately helping that person? For a moment. For what Paul describes as a wisp of smoke. You see, we're, we're not, as, as we pray to God and we, we pray for non-believers, we're, we should be praying for them differently than we pray for believers. Are we going to thank God for all the non-believers we know in our life? God, thank you for my lost friend, Joe Bob. Thank you for him that he's an object of your wrath and has no hope and will be condemned to hell. Thank you, God. Is that, that, that's not even, that, that's horrible. I'm glad and grateful for God for being a just God. But at the very same time, I'm glad and grateful for God being a merciful God. You see, and I'm begging God to save my, my lost friend, Jobob. And his name's not Jobob, I'm just going to tell you. But I'm not going to say it out there for the whole world to hear. But I have, lost, I, I have two people in mind as I think of them right now. I pray that God will save them. It's the same way that Paul prayed in Romans 10.1 as he has dealt with in, in 9. He gives us some beautiful perspectives of God's sovereign will to, to, to provide mercy or withhold mercy. But he comes in, 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 in Romans 10.1, he comes to a place where he says, I pray that God would save them. Now, if you're lost friends, don't have you praying for their salvation. What are you praying for them for? You know, I was struck months and months ago, a girl sent to our, our prayer request uh, form that's on our website. She sent this prayer request. I don't know how she came across it. I don't know how she ever heard of us. But she, she is sick to her stomach as she recognizes a dear friend of hers is lost. And she's praying for his salvation daily. She's reaching out and asking others to pray. Resting in God's sovereignty, but not ceasing to ask for his salvation. You see, our prayers should be shaped by, our, by the people that they are prayed for in, in that person's relationship to Christ. Who is that person in Jesus? Who are they in relationship to Jesus? What, what are you praying for them? Praying for your enemies. Jesus said it, Matthew 5, He tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, there's all kinds of imprecatory prayers. Prayers for God's vengeance. Prayers for God's justice in the Psalms. Huge, powerful prayers to, 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 to ask God to act on the behalf of his people. To, to revenge, to, 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 to bring their revenge or to bring vengeance. But let me tell you, as believers, as a people who should have been and received His wrath, if all we want is His revenge, that says more about us than it does the people we're praying for. Pray for His vengeance, but pray for His mercy. And see, and as Paul prays, he knows he is praying specifically. You heard it back in Ephesians 1.1 when he, when he wrote the letter, when he introduced the letter. He's praying for, for specifically for those he's addressing in this letter. The saints who are in Ephesus, 
You remember what saints means. Saints is, is a person who's been made holy. Saints is someone who God has set apart, who God has chosen for himself. But there's a second clause that says, saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. A people who have been chosen and who, whose holiness is made evident in their life. These two things go together. As he prays for them, he knows who he's praying for. He knows they're in Christ and he, he, he forms his petitions. He, he, de, de, he determines his prayer based on their connection to Jesus. Well, what does he ask? Paul's petitions in, in prayer, what did, what did he ask for? He's not asking about Aunt Susie's ingrown toenail. He's not, he's not asking about some distant relative's uh, job circumstance. He's not talking to God about health. He's not talking to God about finances. He's, he's not even asking any specific circumstantial request. And I think that that is absolutely imperative for us to see. I mean, you, you, you've done it. If you're in a community group, you've done it. You've sat around, you ask prayer requests, and this is a point where you know, nobody wants to look at one another anymore. We all look down, look at the floor. Anybody having prayer requests? Nobody wants to make, I, I think it's pro- partly because we're scared somebody's going to ask us to pray for somebody else. Because we've never been taught to pray, we get scared, right? We won't, we won't make eye contact. Anybody got any requests? And, and I'm not saying, listen, man, hear my heart. I'm kind of poking fun, but I am not saying it's bad to, to pray for the circumstances of one another's life. If you've got emotional struggle, if you've got, if you've got vocational struggles, if you've got issues that you're dealing with in your family, bring those and pray for them. But if that's where your prayer stops, we are missing the depth and power of prayer. You see, if, if our whole life resides in what we experience here, we are missing the depth and power and beauty and majesty of the gospel starts down deep in here. And Paul saw that, Paul knew it, and Paul brought it. So as he prays, he he prays for some very specific things, some very powerful things. He prays that God would give these people a spirit of wisdom. And maybe you've heard wisdom described as as a, a, a right use or a right yeah, a right use of knowledge. It's, it's, about, it's about having knowledge with experience and skill. It's, it's about being able to take knowledge and do something with it. He wants us to have a spirit of wisdom. And, and there's a lot of discussion in, in the commentaries about whether this spirit should be capitalized, signifying the Holy Spirit, or should be lowercase s, signifying um, uh, our spirit. And it depends on what translation you read as to how the interpreters uh, translated it. I believe in the NASB and the King James it's capitalized. Uh, I, I can't even remember what it is in the ESV. But the reality is, is that um, I don't think that debate really matters. And here's why. Because you're not going to have a spirit of wisdom. Your spirit is not going to be wise if you've not been given wisdom by the spirit. The Holy Spirit brings wisdom to your spirit. You see, he brings you into truth. He gives you understanding. He gives you insight. He gives you skill. He gives you ability. He gives you opportunity to use the knowledge that he brings to you. So without the Holy Spirit acting, your spirit is going to be dull. 
But Paul wants these people, these believers, to have a spirit of wisdom, a, a, a revelation. We, we don't know God if he hasn't revealed himself to us. You, you can look at any culture. You can go to the deepest, darkest parts of, of, of Africa or South America. I, you name a continent, you go to the deepest, darkest places where nobody else has been. You find people, you'll find people who have devised gods of their own because everything around them tells them there's something more out there. But without revelation, they create gods out of the created order. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, that happens here too. In the most illuminated places in America, without his revelation, we create things out of the created order. It may not be the sun. We, we, we haven't deified the sun here. We don't worship the sun as if it's some living being. We, we don't carve statues and bow before them, and some people in America do. But for the most part, that's not the way we worship. But we worship things like power and sex and money. Certainly not any better objects of worship. We need his revelation that we might know him and that we might know him in an increasing fashion. That we might know more about him tomorrow than we do today. We need his revelation. And he specifically says that third thing he says is knowledge of him. He asks that we'd have a knowledge of him. Different, it's, it's different than just knowing about God. This is knowing someone intimately. This, is, this, this, this word, it signifies that, that there's personal involvement. It demonstrates a relationship between the learner and the object that he's learning about. This demonstrates personal involvement. If Paul wants these people, he's, he's asking God, he's pleading with God, he's petitioning God that these people, these believers, would know him. But knowing God is different than knowing about God. We can teach God just like any subject in school. Systematic theology, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I learn from it all the time. I, I have volumes on it. And in fact, the, the biggest volumes, the biggest set of volumes of systematic theology I have takes up about that much room on a bookshelf. That's about a foot and a half, two feet on a bookshelf. It's by Lewis Berry Schaefer. It's eight volumes. Ton of information about God and the things of God. One of my favorites is Wayne Grudem. It's it's only about three inches thick, but it's just as thick and just or just as powerful and just as real and full of good information about God. But we can teach these things in classes. In fact, that's in many ways that's what systematic theology does. It breaks it down into subjects that we can just teach. And I can talk to you about God's sovereignty, and I can talk to you about God's providence, and I can talk to you about his attributes. I can talk to you about his work. I can talk to you about his actions. I can talk to you about his plans, and I can talk to you about his purposes, and I can come to you and give you this information. And you can learn a lot about God without ever really knowing God. Paul wants you wants us, wants these believers that he's got in mind. He wants us to know God, not just by information, but an experience. 
in life. Now, I just, if, if you've been here, I want, I want to call this to your attention. And there's a reason for it. If you've been here, and this, this is where you call church, and, and you came, have been with us through the summer, I want you to hear that this is the exact same thing that I've been pleading for for this church for months and months and months. I want you to know God. I want you to know God like I know God, but I want you to know God more than I know God. I want you, I want you to be so full of Him that it overflows so much that as you walk into the world that nobody can help but take notice that there's something different. That His grace just bubbles up out of you and touches everyone you meet. That His joy is so real. That even the worst of circumstances don't get you down. That the peace that you experience with Him flows into the relationships that you have among one another. That the satisfaction you found in Jesus leads you to contentment in your life here. And longing more and more for your life there. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's what I want for you. To know Him that well. To know Him that deeply and intimately. That this stuff doesn't matter. That it doesn't shine and shimmer. That it doesn't tempt you and, and, and pull, you, pull at you. But that it, it becomes dull and waste and, and the pile and heap of trash that it is. The wasting, rotting filth that's in the world. To be replaced by the joy and satisfaction of living in the light of your salvation. I want you to know God like that. I think that's why Paul wants you to know God. I want you to pray for one another to know God like that. I want you to move beyond the ingrown toenails, the circumstantial struggles, to the depth and the power and the beauty of what the gospel brings us. Know God. And then he says that there's three things that he wants us to know from God. Hope. Paul wants us to know what to look forward to in Christ. As Paul uses this word hope, it's not like we use hope. It's not a wishful thought. It's not like, it's not something that we want, but we really have no basis or, or reason to really expect it. See, Paul, is, in, in all of Scripture, really, as, as the word hope is used, it is to, to call us to be confident in what we're looking forward to, to be certain that it's going to come to pass. See, as we hope, I, I like to define it as confident expectation. Our, our confidence is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He died and he is alive. And because of that, the work that needed to be done is done. It's finished. But there is more to look forward to. There's more to look forward to because he said, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and I'm going to bring you to be with me. See, we can face every day, we can walk into every situation, we can walk into every circumstance and be confident that this is not the end. That this is not going to undo us. That this is not going to take us over, but that this is going to just be the beginning of us seeing the blessings of our great God. I mean, if we didn't experience the rain, we wouldn't know how to appreciate the sunshine, right? 
if, 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 we didn't, if we didn't experience the struggles that this world has to offer, how would we learn to long for the next? This confident expectation. Paul longs for us. I long for you. I pray this for you. Paul wants us to understand our inheritance. When we, when we, get, when we understand what it is that God's done for us, when we know what God is, is saving up for us, when, when we have a perspective of how much He has already done and what He's already given and what we have to look forward to, this inheritance is where we're going to find our satisfaction. It's where we're going to find our contentment. We struggle with the idea that we have to have a certain amount of money in the bank. We struggle with the idea that there needs to be certain things to, to I got to have a plan for this. There's, I, I got to be in control of this. I got to be, no. Your inheritance is in Christ. And that inheritance is sure. It is certain. And it will satisfy. We sang about it just a minute ago. You know, Jesus, you satisfy. And there was this emotional moment while all of us were singing. Moved. But let's be honest. We don't always look and find our satisfaction in Jesus, do we? I don't. But Paul knows when we see and know our inheritance... We'll be ready to leave this world behind. And he also asks that we know God's power. And he can't just ask about God's power because there's, we, we have a perspective of power. I mean, we have power, right? We, we can do a lot of things. I, I can beat, maybe not all of you, but I can beat a bunch of you in arm wrestling. I got enough power to beat you arm wrestling. In fact, it was really funny in China. This is not part of the sermon, but just share it because it came to mind. I don't know how it happened. I walked into a village. I don't know that these people even know what arm wrestling is. Standing there trying to share the gospel, and this guy just wants to arm wrestle. Like, all right, so I arm wrestle, I beat him, and then they bring another guy. This is how I know I could beat most of you. <laughs> they bring another guy, and I beat him. And they bring another guy, and I beat him. And I think it was after three or four. I can't remember how many, but they bring in their ringer. And out walks the stockiest, most muscular. He's not even taller than I am, but this dude is rock solid. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to beat him. <laughs> he beat me bad. It was, it was horrible. But we got power, right? I mean, we've got power. We can do stuff. And, and here's the thing. We don't just have physical power. We got mental power. The things we can't do, we've got a mind to overcome. So we create machines to do things we can't do easily. Backhoes, man, they, they can move a lot more dirt with their power than you and I can move with a shovel. A lot faster, a lot easier. A lot less exertion on our part. You know, I mean, that's the reality of it. But it's not just that. Our mental power enables us to communicate here, from here, to people in China instantly. I mean, I could, I could well, I don't have a friend in China that wants to talk to me right now. But I'm telling you, if I did, I could call him up and we could talk right now. That's power. We have so much power that, that on, on, on little things that we can put in our pocket, we can watch events as they occur or have been recorded, because we can, we can invent things that save up images for us to watch later. We carry this stuff around in our pockets. That's power. 
We, we have so much power that we can even fend off the aging process. D- diseases today that would have automatically meant death before, we can actually treat them. And the death toll from them is much less today than it was years ago. Cancer is one of those. It was horrible, ever, it's, it was horrible to ever hear that someone in your family has cancer. It still carries a, a, a stigma with it. But cancer is not automatically the end anymore, is it? Plenty of stories of cancer survivors. Because God's given us this power to be able to combat these things. We even have so much power that we can fend off the aging process. And, and you see it, man. You see people in Hollywood. I think, I think the people that come to mind first are like Joan Rivers and, and, and Bert, um, the Smokey and the Bandit. Burt Reynolds. Reynolds. There you go. Thank you. That's how connected I am to pop culture. But you look at them, and you can tell they've been fighting the aging process, right? I mean, their faces are stretched so tight, it doesn't even look normal anymore. Their nostrils are where most of our cheeks are. (laughs) That's that's terrible. I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. (laughs) This is funny. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I'm broken. I need your help. All right, so, you know, they're fighting. Not, not winning the battle, but they're fighting. But you know what they can't do? They can't beat death. Death is coming. There's not a, room in, uh, not a person in this room that escapes it unless Jesus comes back first. Death is coming for you, and you can't beat him. But this power, this immeasurable Power, this great power overcame that. A, de- a, a power so great that there's nothing you and I can do to overcome, and his power squashed it like a bug. That's power. He wants you to know that power. I want you to know that power. Look, here, here it is. When, when we know the hope we have in Christ, we're made able to persevere. People who hope in something, who have real confident expectation, they act differently, they live differently, they choose differently. That, that's the reality of it. You, you look at any studies on hope. It's the truth. But here's the deal. You have confident hope. You have confidence in the promises. And you can persevere. You can make it. When we know the inheritance we've been given, we are going to learn to be content and satisfied. I I, I looked at Lauren Taylor. You guys know Lauren Taylor. She's in Ethiopia. She's struggling. She's in this place where she longs to be at home again. And she longs to stay there in Ethiopia where she's serving. And she made a comment that struck me. She said, our hearts, our our human, our, our flesh is always longing for something else. For the next thing. Here's where satisfaction resides. Here's where contentment lives. When you know your inheritance. When we know his great and immeasurable power. We have no need to fret and worry. We have no need to sense or or desire. There's no reason for us to be in control anymore. There's no reason for us to be the ones in power. There's no reason for us to demand. Control of others or control of circumstances. 
we can actually rest in him. We can pick up his light yoke instead of carrying our heavy one. But there's a flip side to that. How many of you worry about the circumstances and situations of your life? How many of you struggle emotionally because you're not satisfied with the circumstance you're in? How many of you long for a better job? Maybe better friends? Maybe a better, better place of service in the church? See, all of these reveal to us that we don't believe or know something about this great God who saved us. God has you where he wants you. He's sovereign. Don't fight against it. Learn in it. God has provided for you more than you could imagine. Don't struggle for more in this earth. Don't live for what the world has to offer. But accept it, enjoy it as, as you're able, but recognize these things are fading, failing. Be satisfied. How many of us? I'd say every one of us. I want you. And not just those of you that are here today that are members of this church and that I am going to stand one day in front of this God and, and, and be accountable for the way I led. Not just you, but for you visitors here today that are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is my prayer for you. I want you to know this God who has given His Son that you can know Him and walk in relationship with Him and, and experience Him. This is the God I want you to know. And I wish I was as sure as Paul. But I think Paul's assurance is made clear in the last part of this passage. For he tells us how he can count on these things to come to pass. Hey, Paul's assurance, his confidence is because Jesus doesn't reside in the tomb anymore. Paul's assurance is because Jesus is sitting on a throne ruling and reigning in everything, everything, everything is under his authority, is, 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 at the, at the, uh, is subject to his power. There's nothing that you and I experience that he doesn't allow or cause for our good and his glory. There's nothing that, he, that is happening in our life that he doesn't know about, that he's not there with you for. There's nothing in your life that's hidden from him. So instead of trying to get out of it, instead of trying to figure out the, the better way that you see in your own eyes, may you know Wisdom, a spirit of wisdom. Have a revelation that you may know God, His hope, His inheritance, and His immeasurable great power. All right. Today we're going to do something a little different. If you're visiting with us, this is not something we do often. And, and for those that are introverted, it's going to scare you to death, but I think it's going to be good. I gave you cards with bullet points. Spread them out around the church, and some of you might be thinking, oh, man, I wish he'd just given us those to take home. Well, we're going to practice this today, right now. 
So at the close, to close this message out, we're going to pray for one another. And so I'm going to ask you, not just husbands and wives, but just groups, three, four, five, whatever, what's, what's comfortable. If you're just sitting by yourselves on a row, turn around and, and, and talk to the people behind you. You don't need to share a lot about your circumstances. Just spend time praying these things for one another. You see, here's the reality. God has called us into this gracious rebellion. He informed us, uh, he, he, he called us into it, he's informed us of it, he's given us information about it, and he says now we are active participants in it. Let's rebel together for the glory of God. Let's do this for one another. So, gather up right now, uh, go ahead and turn around and start praying for one another. I will close us out in just a moment.